Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this afternoon's presentation titled Blending, Melting, or Throwing Off a Cliff, Abuse Deterrent Technologies to Minimize Opioid Abuse. This afternoon's speaker is Jeremy Adler, co-owner and chief operating officer at Pacific Pain Medicine Consultants in California. So I'm going to turn it over to him. All right, thank you. So how's everyone uh, doing this afternoon? Good. I love the title of this program, and I can take no credit for it. I was just given this title after I uh, submitted uh, slides. So uh, blending, melting, throwing off a cliff. Uh, ADF, this is the, uh, the talk of the town in the, uh, in the pain world. I don't know how much it's a talk outside of our world, but certainly we are, are trying to look at different technologies and, and ways to engineer our products to, to hopefully make a safer product, build a better mousetrap. And this is nothing new. In fact, the idea that uh, opioids could be made safer has been inherent in their design since the beginning. Many of the molecules that we have today were developed with the thought that they would be safer molecules may not have panned out exactly, but nonetheless, that was some of the intent. So I hope today, in terms of objectives, that we're going to talk about the standards established for labeling an opioid as abuse deterrent. There's some very specific criteria as to what it means to be an abuse deterrent opioid, and not to be confused with abuse proof. Uh, we have yet to have an opioid that can't be abused, but we're going to talk about abuse deterrents. Look at the uh, technological strategies. What have our engineer colleagues out there develop for us that we can utilize in the delivery of our medications. Look at the um, current FDA-approved products. Look at how they uh, are labeled and look at how they were studied. Uh, each product that we have that has abuse deterrent formulations inherent within it was studied in a little bit different way. There were some commonalities, but they're all somewhat unique. And for some of you, you may not actually realize how many products we have that have ADF technologies. And then hopefully, uh, introduce maybe the concept, how do they fit in? Who gets these? What are they good for? Who might really benefit? So a safer opioid, as I mentioned, uh, you know, this goes back a long time. Uh, in the 1800s, there was an epidemic of morphine abuse. In fact, uh, morphine and opium were thought to help with some of the problems with alcoholism, even earlier on. And uh, that didn't quite pan out. So then Bayer brought us uh, heroin, and uh, that was good for coughs. The little Add in the lower right-hand side there is, you know, giving it to kids, you know. Better than morphine, I suppose, uh, at the time. Now, of course, you know, we look back at that and go, holy cow, right? How did we ever go uh, from uh, that being a pharmaceutical produced by a company that still exists? I mean, they bring us aspirin and, uh, and many other agents. But nonetheless, I, I introduce this because opioids are inherently unsafe, and I'm always a skeptic when it comes to our various compounds and recognize that we have to treat these with a, a significant amount of respect. We have to remember there really isn't a safe opioid. I think a lot of the engineering and technology are trying to improve the safety of our opioids, but they're still needing to be given to the right patients for the right problems. They need to be monitored in these patients. We need to really consider the totality of the case, and I would never want to have a healthcare professional rely on technology as a uh, alternative means of providing opioids to patients without doing the necessary risk assessment and patient selection. This to me is more of a safety net, not, not the primary means in which we uh, provide patients opioids uh, appropriately. So abuse of opioids happen in lots of ways. And I think it's really important to keep that in mind. People can take pills, they can mix pills with things like alcohol, they can uh, heat them up, they can inject them, they can snort them. Um, there's all sorts of 
engineering chemists out there that will uh, figure out ways to extract active compounds from our drugs. And for as smart as we might be when it comes to uh, making these drugs abuse deterrent, there will be some engineer out there that outsmarts us and figures a way, out a way to get the drug. So we can try, but, but understand the goal is not to thwart all forms of abuse because I think really we would not be successful in that quest. I think our goal is to make these more difficult, to make them more likely to stay within the possession of those people who absolutely need this type of medication and make them less desirable to those who might seek them out for abuse. Hopefully this chart's been shown to you in some form or another uh, over the years. I really like it because I think it is important that we really think about what is happening in our communities. This is data from SAMHSA, so federal government data looking at the source of medications when abused, or rather the source of an opiate when abused. So the big circle there, that represents when somebody was asked if they've taken a pain medication non-medically in the past year, where did they get it? And what I think is really critical on this is by and large the majority, 75% uh, or so, got it without a prescription. And that's fundamental to our role, I think, on the healthcare professional side to recognize is that we can have somebody sitting in front of us do a full-on risk assessment, drug test them, look at their PDMPs, uh, look at their records, make sure they have a good diagnosis and monitor them. But the number of people that are actively abusing the, the drug that are a patient in front of a healthcare provider is about a quarter uh, of the source in terms of those that are abusing it. And that's really critical. And in fact, I want to draw your attention to the silver sliver right in the center. And that represents the doctor shopper. So if somebody is actively abusing an opioid, 2.6% on this particular year's data suggests they got it through doctor shopping. Now think about the widespread implementation of PDMPs across the country and the emphasis put on PDMPs as being a very important part of the solution. PDMPs have been adopted in clinical practice guidelines, multiple guidelines, and many state legislatures now have mandated that healthcare providers check these either each time or very frequently when prescribing. The incidence, though, here is a relatively small percent. And I'm a big advocate for PDMP. I'm not suggesting that we don't do it. But I want to make the point that we're putting a huge emphasis on part of the problem, but that part of the problem is certainly not the biggest piece of this pie. The smaller circle on the right represents the source of where the drug came from that the abuser got it diverted to them. So the big circle is the person who's actively taking the drug non-medically. The question is, well, where did you get it? And you'll see on the smaller circle there in red was one prescriber, one doctor, by and large, was 83.8%. So you can imagine you have a patient. It could be a very appropriate patient. But at some point, that drug may leave their possession and end up in the hands of somebody who is seeking the drug non-medically. And that's another important factor that oftentimes is very difficult for us to deal with, uh, diversion. Sometimes we think if we get a UDT back, a urine drug test, with a negative sample that that you know, means that the patient is diverting. It's actually a lot of things that that can mean, but certainly that's in the differential. But we don't have a lot of great tests, certainly, for diversion. Well, what about doctor shopping and the diverters? So in our patients, well, you can see in that small circle, it was about 3% as well, a little over. So again, a lot of emphasis on PDMPs. I think that they can do a lot of value. And when you get a patient who's been doctor shopping, it's, it's like, wow, how did this go without being detected? But I think really, it's the transition from the small circle to the big circle that really would capture the biggest kind of piece of this pie, and that's the diversion from legitimate medical practice to somebody who will ultimately uh, seek it non-medically. And how we address diversion, I think, is a number 
uh, has a number of different ways. And one of them is to try to restrict access. So smaller prescriptions and lockable containers and just physical barriers and education, telling your patients not to let the medicines leave their possession. Little education goes a long way, I think, in that regard. But if our medications are less desirable because they're more difficult to deal with, that's another way to potentially interfere with this diversion aspect. And from my perspective, that's one of the really important aspects that ADF technologies provide, is that then they can be given to a patient who has a legitimate medical need, and at the same time potentially be less desirable for somebody to seek them out non-medically, and if they do seek it out non-medically, maybe interfere with some of the more dangerous ways that they abuse these types of medications. I looked at uh, a quick Google search here and said, how easy is it to get around an ADF technology? I was just curious. So I just put in Google search. I think I put in bypass ADF pills for abuse. And the first hit came up with this multi-step process on how to bypass one of the pills ADF system. And I thought to myself, this is really remarkable. You put it in a beaker, you heat it up, and uh, I copied it. That's why it says pedestal. It's pestle. Um, you crush it, you heat it more, you have to caramelize it, but don't burn or blacken it. You've got to get it bubbling, take it off the heat, you have to add in some water, you dissolve it, then you put it back on the heat, add in more water, you put a little cotton swab in there to suck up some of the, uh, the gunk, the goo, put it in one syringe, transfer it to another, and finally you've got something that you can uh, work with. If people are going to go through the level of effort to try to thwart our technologies, some of them will be successful. But I think if we look at the magnitude of the problem, a lot of people out there that are seeking these drugs are not necessarily going through this multi-step process. And this is just one, and, uh, and I don't know if it's validated. This was just right off Google. We have other challenges. Drugs which we prescribe are being abused, but they aren't always sourcing from healthcare professionals. So, you know, the issues with some of the synthetic uh, fentanyls and carfentanyl and drug cartels and um, the, the magnitude of the problem is impacting our patients because every time somebody is harmed by an opioid, especially if it's an opioid that we could prescribe potentially, but even if it wasn't prescribed, the backlash to that has been more regulation on the healthcare provider side. So the better we can do as healthcare providers to make sure that our medications stay within our patient population that it is intended for, the more available and accessible these products will be for our patients. Because if we can't kind of do our part in trying to help decrease the diversion of these drugs and the abuse of these drugs, then I, I only see the writing on the wall, which has already been enacted in many ways, is just the restriction on, on providing this class of medication, either specific agents or specific doses. This is just showing the CDC's chart showing the uh, shift in, uh, uh, this is looking at deaths related to opioids and, and the heroin and the synthetic opioids certainly have been rising uh, since uh, around 2010. Now what happened in 2010? Anybody know? That What's that? ADF. ADF, right. We had our first ADF product approved by the FDA, which was uh, OxyContin or is OxyContin reformulated. Um, this is certainly not a graph showing cause and effect, but nonetheless, that was the time when there became more interest in looking at technology uh, in terms of these medications. Well, let's shift gears out of our world of pain and talk about another industry that was certainly plagued with problems. Because you'll hear often in the rhetoric around opioids that the number of people now dying of opioids has exceeded motor vehicle accidents, right? So that's often said. So what about motor vehicle accidents? If that was the benchmark or is the benchmark, what has happened in that industry? 
Well, if you look back uh, through time here, this is looking at deaths, and you'll see that it was climbing and climbing and climbing and climbing, and all the way up until 1970, and all of a sudden deaths from motor vehicle accidents started going down. Now, did we just have better driver education? Like, is this just, you know, we're just better on the road? Or was there some engineering that may have played a role in some of the safety of motor vehicle accidents? Well, if you look at some of the technological advances, uh, cars, they started getting hydraulic brakes, safety glass, you know, seat belts. Um, you get a little bit more into the uh, 70s, you get side impact prevention things, airbags. You get your third brake light so you can see. Now you've got cars that will brake on their own uh, so that you can't uh, hit something. Um, we have a backup uh, brake on our vehicle that engages if you get too close to something, and it failed, and we had a bike rack on the car, and we were stuck. We couldn't back up, but they work. You get blind spot warnings, automatic braking, and driverless cars is really the, the future. Now, one of the important things to consider when looking at this technology is, does this technology make it so you can't crash a car? No. Does it make it so that you can have an impaired driver? No. You still have to have a knowledgeable driver who's aware. I mean, maybe driverless cars in the future will change that. But as a current technology, these enhance the safety of motor vehicle accidents, but they do not eliminate risk. And I think that's really important, and I think it's very parallel to the ADF. Well, what about things like uh, the airbag? That came out in the 80s. It's been around in cars for a long time. Well, not every technology works, and some are plagued with problems. Huge recall, right, related to airbags. So you have a safety technology, and you know, these had some problems. Well, did we just get rid of the airbags? You know, say, ah, it's not worth it. There's problems with it. No, you go back and you re-engineer and you figure out how to make it better and make it safer. I bring this up because of the uh, the recent um, impact uh, on uh, one of our products uh, in the marketplace, which is uh, Opana ER. I'm sure most of you in this type of audience would know that it was uh, requested to be recalled and, and will be um, recalled. And it's a really interesting, I think, uh, story because it has to do with the potential harms of the technology. So there were patients in Tennessee, or I shouldn't say patients, these were uh, people that were abusing uh, Opana ER. Um, and they were preparing them in a way to, so first of all, step back a second, just so you know, Opana ER was reformulated to utilize a technology with high molecular weight PEO to make it more difficult to crush. And one of the ways in which this product was previously abused was through uh, crushing it and snorting it. And when it became more difficult, it became more likely to be abused through a uh, injection, that people would figure out a way to manipulate it. And apparently it's not so easy to make it into a form that can be injected. So therefore, you had to break it down. It took a couple of injections and rinsing uh, in between them to be able to inject this product. And guess what? People had some problems when they were injecting this pill that wasn't intended to be injected and using this recreationally and sharing needles. This is you know, a complicated situation. Well, there were 15 cases of uh, TTP in Tennessee, maybe related to the PEO. And in Indiana, there were cases of HIV and, and hep C. And, um, you know, that led then to uh, the FDA to look at these uh, uh, outcomes and came up with kind of, I think, a, a little bit of a, a policy shift. And this is uh, going back now to June. This is very current, where they requested that they remove it. And uh, just to quote some statements from the FDA, 
They say this is the first time the agency has taken steps to remove a currently marketed opioid pain medication from sale due to a public health consequence of abuse. Uh, we will continue to take the regulatory steps when we see situations where an opioid product's risk outweighs its benefits not only for its intended patient population, but also in regard to its potential for misuse and abuse. They talk about the TTP and the Hep C, and that the reformulation of Opana ER by injection resulted in a serious disease outbreak. And uh, the FDA's uh, action will protect the public from further potential for misuse and abuse of this product, and it's going to be recalled. So as these new technologies come online, there will be chemists out there that are abusers that are going to try to thwart it, and certainly some of them are going to unsuccessfully uh, do that, but it's something we have to keep in mind. It's not just enough to create products that will try to reduce some of the abuse of these products, but also to make sure that these technologies are, are balanced so that if somebody does thwart it, we're cognizant of the impact it might have on them. Uh, for those of you that don't know what PEO is, uh, PEO is in many of our products, so it's not just Opana ER. Uh, this is a, a polymer that basically forms a um, a gel uh, when it gets wet, and it's very difficult to, uh, to inject it uh, through a syringe or snort it. I think we're going to learn more about the different molecular weights of PEO because there's other products that we routinely uh, work with that have PEO, and, and of course, given the recall of Opana ER, nobody wants to see their product recalled, so I have a feeling we're going to become more knowledgeable on PEO. Uh, the intact technology, that is the uh, proprietary blend of PEO that's in the Opana ER. It's high molecular weight. They have this special hot exclusion, uh, hot melt exclusion process. And the goal of this was to make it difficult to break and difficult to uh, inject. So the, the path to abuse deterrent formulation really goes back about a decade. About a 2008 or so, the CDC actually testified uh, to the uh, Congress about the need for manufacturers to produce drugs which were more difficult to manipulate and abuse. So that was really from the CDC that this whole industry was sparked. And that led to, to a lot of different uh, developments. Well, in 2013, uh, there was a draft guidance. And then in 15, there was the final guidance that basically said, this is actually what is needed to be conducted for an opioid to be considered abuse deterrent. Because otherwise, who knows what people would do? They would come up with different drugs. They would study them in different manners. You needed to have some sort of standards. So since ADF has talked about a lot, I want to go through what those standards are. What did the FDA come up with in terms of making a drug be labeled by them as abuse deterrent? Well, first of all, the goal here is to make a safer opioid analgesic. And the goal to, about abuse is to deter it. And the FDA, this is right from the document, considers the development of these products a high public health priority. I kind of emphasize that because although the CDC has asked manufacturers to make these things, the FDA has supported them and states that they're a high public health priority, unless your practice is very different than mine, providing these actually to patients is quite challenging. There's payer issues and coverage issues and, and all sorts of barriers that exist. Um, around this class of medication. But nonetheless, the governmental agencies um, have put their uh, support, even some state legislatures have passed legislation uh, mandating uh, equal access to ADF technology. In terms of abuse, uh, this was when a manipulated opioid product is uh, manipulated for a different route of administration. 
And often the intent was to defeat the extended release opioid product. So if you had a 12 or 24 hours or some sort of amount of drug within the, the capsule or the pill, you, abusers would try to, to basically make it immediate release, try to defeat that extended release property. Um, so what's the strategy? You can make manipulation more difficult and make it less attractive or less rewarding. So maybe if they were to manipulate it, all of a sudden it lost the benefit that they were seeking it out for in the first place. Now, although the technology is intended to uh, deter the most common forms of abuse, pill, there certainly is the potential for somebody just to swallow multiples. So they could just take a handful. There is work being done on products to try to, to thwart that mechanism, um, but nonetheless, there's still some uh, challenges uh, there. And the FDA reiterates that abuse deterrent products doesn't mean that the products are abuse-proof or can't be abused. That is not what that language stands for. And of course, they still have to provide the opioid. So you, you, know, you could probably take any of our opioids, surround them in uh, some sort of impenetrable lead or something, and if you give them to the patient, yeah, they probably can't abuse it, but of course they're not gonna actually get the drug. So they still have to actually make sure that the drug is received by the intended population. The uh, abuse definitions here, um, basically it's the intentional non-therapeutic use of a drug um, even once to achieve a desirable psychological or physiological effect. Uh, misuse is using the drug in an inappropriate way. And tamper-resistant. Um, I happen to like that word when it comes to the manipulation uh, mechanisms, but that the FDA has defined as something to do with the packaging, that the packaging is tamper-resistant, not the product. So that's why these are abuse deterrent formulations as opposed to tamper-resistant formulations. So what are the mechanisms? People swallow these pills, they crush them and then swallow them, they crush them and they snort them, they crush them and they smoke them, and they crush them and they inject them. These are really the more common ways that people might try to alter the delivery system or, uh, or achieve some other effect with the various opioids that we have. So therefore, the abuse deterrent properties can include things like a physical or chemical barrier, something physical about the product, like a hard tablet um, that make it difficult to crush. You could try to reduce the reward with an agonist-antagonist combination. So maybe if they crush it, it releases another agent which has an effect, either uh, blocking the effects uh, or blocking the effects. You can have aversion technologies. Maybe something really unpleasant happens to them if they uh, try to manipulate it. You can change the route of delivery. Um, you can come up with something new. You can combine these things together, or you can just really be novel in your approach and just kind of come up with a whole new approach to how to make a drug abuse deterrent. In terms of physical or chemical properties, what they want to do is subject these medications in clinical trials to various ways that people might try to, to thwart them. So things like chewing them, crushing them, cutting them, grating them, grinding them, adding other agents like uh, biological media, alcohol, organic solvents, and um, really look at the impact of all these different mechanisms. The agonist-antagonist, uh, this is... Uh, Again, adding an agent that is generally sequestered, and if you manipulate it, it releases it to try to reduce or defeat the euphoria. And the aversion, uh, I had mentioned this is, uh, there, there, there is a product that has a aversion uh, technology. It's not labeled by, as abuse deterrent because it didn't conduct all these clinical trials, but if you were to crush it and, and snort it, it has an agent that actually irritates the nasal mucosa trying to dissuade people from using it by that route of entry. 
delivery systems, maybe a depot injection underneath the skin um, would reduce uh, abuse or putting an implant uh, in somebody. And uh, new drugs, pro-drugs, having them undergo some sort of uh, enzyme that's only in the GI tract uh, for activation so that if they were to inject it or snort it, maybe it wouldn't have an effect. Using different uh, receptor sites, having a slower penetration to the central nervous system. So lots of different ways to think about coming up with these products. Now, in terms of how they're studied, the studies have to be meaningful. Um, and it really has to suggest that the technology will actually have an impact on the abuse of the products. And uh, they categorize them in four categories. In category one studies, these are laboratory-based, they're in vitro uh, manipulation and extraction studies. This is when they're hitting these pills with hammers, putting them in coffee grinders and grating them and, and mixing them with uh, alcohol and trying just to see what happens when you kind of play with the, the pill. Uh, then you've got your category two pharmacokinetic effects, what happens in people when they've been manipulated. Then you do your category three. These must be interesting to conduct. These are where you take people that are generally non-dependent recreational drug abusers, and you give them the product in various ways, and you see what they think about it. Hey, do you like it? Do you, uh, would you take it again? You know, is this, is this a good thing? And, you, and rate it, and you put it on a scale. And then category four data, of which none of our ADF products have at this point, is well, what happens out there in the real world with this technology? And can you demonstrate data showing that the product actually did reduce abuse as it was intended uh, by its engineering? So we talked a little bit about category one. Uh, this is, again, the crushing, the cutting, the chewing, mixing it, seeing if it dose dumps with alcohol. There was a product uh, probably about 12 years ago, if I remember correctly, that if you were to take it with, uh, put it in alcohol, it would completely allow the uh, active opioid to be released into the uh, the alcohol and become an immediate release. Um, so they look at these things and see what manipulating does to the product. And then category uh, one also includes like crushing it with spoons, its pH, all these different things you can mix it with. The pharmacokinetics is uh, what happens in, in people. Uh, you have to consider the risks of incipient. Some of these drugs, when they think about IV or parental abuse, they can't really ethically crush up a pill and inject it in somebody's vein. So they have to think, well, okay, how can you simulate that? So some of the agonist-antagonist models you'll see is that they kind of did an a injection with the agonist and a chaser with the antagonist at the same ratio as if somebody were to crush it, but not actually using the pill for their clinical trials. If they're going to do a nasal study, they need people with a history of nasal abuse in terms of those being recruited, and they have to consider food and alcohol on the uh, effects. Okay, the category three uh, study, this is in the recreational drug abusers. Now, I've heard some talk about this that, well, how relevant is this? We're giving these ADF opioids to patients, yet we're studying people that are recreational abusers. These are, these are different populations. And I agree, they are certainly different populations. I happen to think that's a good population to study because I think that, from my own personal perspective, the ADF technology has the greatest potential to interfere with some of the diversion, and that diversion is going to these abusers. So I kind of want to know what happens if the drug gets diverted to them, because that's a population I can't risk assess or monitor because they're not sitting in front of me. These people have to be able to differentiate placebo from opioid. So if you're going to study them, they have to know what it feels like to take an opioid. So they give them placebo, they give them opioid, and they have to get it right. 
And then they have to do it in a couple, they have to study these in a different, couple different ways. They have to take the ADF compared to a, a positive control and then a control to a uh, placebo. Generally, they don't study physically dependent patients, uh, physiologically dependent, uh, because of the potential for that interfering with the results. And these are people that have taken opioids non-medically at times, and there's some criteria for that. But they have to be experienced, able to distinguish an opioid, but not be dependent. In terms of the studies, they have to look at the epidemiological data for the common ways in which these drugs are abused, generally nasal or injectable. And uh, as I had mentioned, the excipients and some of these may not be safe for actually conducting a trial with them. In terms of outcomes, so in this group of, of uh, abusers being studied, they look at drug liking. So they, they run a scale, a Likert scale of drug liking. You know, do you really like it, kind of like it, do you hate it? They look at the good effects, bad effects, and then really an important one um, for the products is the likelihood to take drug again. So would they actually seek this out to take it? Um, and then they have to run statistical analysis. Category four we don't have yet uh, on any of our opioid uh, ADF products, but it will be interesting to see what those studies actually look like and what the labeling uh, modifications might be when those studies are eventually conducted. In terms of labeling, this is a big deal to the different companies. What are they allowed to say? What can they say when they come into an office and they talk about their product because they can only adhere to what's in the label? So the FDA has uh, indicated that the label should basically reflect data supported or reflect information supported by the data. So if they only studied people with nasal abuse, then you can only talk about that. Um, the label is a living document. As new information comes in, they, they want it to be updated. It's not like the label gets written and forever that is the label. So that is a, uh, a living uh, a document about a particular um, medication, and, uh, and that's important for us to understand uh, when we look at those. Here are the uh, approved products uh, currently by the FDA with ADF technology. And uh, for a lot of people, they may not realize that we actually have this many drugs that have at least some components of the um, ADF uh, in their label. Uh, this is just in uh, order of approval. Uh, there may be drugs out there that you've not seen before because they're not all being marketed. So they exist, they're approved, but there's no company out there uh, promoting it, so it's not really, uh, they aren't produced or prescribable. Um, but you'll see that the, the agents are the kind of usual suspects that we know. There's a lot of work on the engineering side, but the molecules, oxycodone, morphine, hydrocodone, um, you know, these are, these are not novel drug entities at this point. These are, these are medications that are familiar. They've been engineered, though, uh, to have some different properties. In terms of OxyContin, this was the first uh, drug to actually get labeling when it was reformulated, and it got approved with that labeling in 2010. So that was the beginning of uh, ADF. And the intent was to reduce, reduce and resist uh, crushing and breaking, and, and they used a variety of tools. Uh, it forms a hydrogel. It's more difficult to... Uh, potentially um, put into powder form. And um, the FDA and its label says that, uh, of course, that if you inject it, uh, use it parenterally, you can cause local tissue necrosis, infection, pulmonary granulomas, and increased risk of endocarditis and valvular heart injury. And the label does reflect all these bad things. And pretty much all the labels mention something about the harms of injecting the product, because these were not intended to be injected. They did a nasal abuse study, so they got 30 uh, recreational opiate nasal abusers, and they 
prepared for them different forms. They finely crushed OxyContin, reformulated, they coarsely crushed it, they got the original OxyContin, and they got powdered oxycodone at the same dosage and placebo. And the finely crushed was considered of the manipulated states to be the most manipulated, and they saw it had a lower drug liking score and a lower take drug again compared to the original OxyContin or the powdered oxycodone. Although it was less, it wasn't zero, and about more than half had some reduction in drug liking, but 43% had no reduction in the liking. And the determination based on this data then was that these properties were expected to reduce uh, abuse uh, by intranasal and uh, injection, although it was still possible, but oral abuse is still possible. This is from its label. Uh, Targenique ER, uh, this is not currently marketed. This is an oxycodone naloxone product, which can be crushed. There's nothing in this uh, product that makes it difficult to crush, but it has naloxone that's been sequestered. And the uh, objective here was to have a reversal agent. And uh, they actually studied some opiate-dependent patients, uh, methadone patients, so a little bit different study design than really any of the other uh, ADF products. What they found is that uh, there were some cases that if they uh, crushed it up, uh, it potentially induced a withdrawal. And it says the majority of these cases, emergency attention was required. Uh, they expect the abuse of the manipulated uh, product to deter, um, uh, be deterred by the inability to separate the components. So they can't separate the naloxone from the oxycodone, so therefore they think it should be uh, a good deterrent. Uh, they think uh, reduction in intranasal and intravenous but of course it can still be abused. When they looked at this, they found the intranasal users had a lower drug liking and a lower take drug again. The IV abusers, they had to simulate. So they did not take this product, crush it up, and inject it. What they did is they injected oxycodone and naloxone um, at the same ratio. And that, they had lower drug liking and take drug again. And then they did the same, uh, um, uh, well, the, rather they did a methadone uh, dependent subject which is kind of interesting thinking about what happens when you give this population an antagonist. And uh, they had a lower drug liking and take drug again uh, when given the product. Embedda. Embedda's been out now for uh, a long time. It was available before it was labeled as ADF, and then it uh, acquired ADF labeling. Uh, this one is marketed. It's morphine, and it contains naltrexone. So naltrexone being an antagonist, uh, the intent here was that uh, if it were crushed, it would release the naltrexone, and up to 100% of that naltrexone would get released uh, in a crushed state. And uh, they did a number of uh, ways, that, or they studied this a number of different ways. Um, the parental abuse trial, they couldn't do. They were worried about the talc that's present in the product. So they did not uh, inject people with Embedda, but rather, like the last drug, they kind of simulated it. The, um, they did an oral study, uh, two oral studies, an intranasal and an IV study. Um, basically, it showed that there was a reduction in the drug liking. They also did a drug high. They asked patients or these abusers, how high are you? You know, rating out their, their level of being high. And uh, it was less uh, with uh, crushed and beta. And a lower take drug again. The um, injectable had a lower uh, drug liking and drug high as well. Although three of the 26 that were in the injectable study had no reduction in the drug liking. So again, these technologies are intended to improve the safety of these products, but not everybody out there will be universally impacted the same way. Hysingla is marketed. This is a hydrocodone product. 
and it has physiochemical properties intended to make the tablet more difficult to manipulate. Um, and even in the manipulated state, it maintains some of its extended release characteristics. Um, it forms a gel, so it has poor syringability, meaning it's hard to, to push it through a syringe uh, for injection. And it's thought to deter intranasal intravenous abuse and potentially reduce uh, oral abuse. They studied it, uh, they did an oral study, and they found that uh, versus regular hydrocodone, it 80% uh, had some reduction in drug liking. The intranasal abuse studies, they found that uh, there was a statistically significant decrease in drug liking and take drug again uh, compared to the um, control. Uh, Morphobond is a product which is a extend-release morphine, and this is also uh, using technology to make it difficult to manipulate it, so that category one data in terms of trying to reduce the likelihood that this can be put into a formulation uh, that can be snorted or injected is present, as well as the uh, characteristics that if it is manipulated, that it retains uh, some of its uh, extended, or does it maintain its extended release characteristics. So it doesn't change from this extended release to an immediate release, it retains its extended release even when manipulated, although it's engineered to be hard to manipulate. Um, it has that reduced uh, or increased resistance to cutting, crushing, and breaking it using a bunch of different tools. It forms a viscous gel when mixed with uh, aqueous uh, environments. And the thought is that it has properties that are expected to reduce uh, abuse or misuse by injection or insufflation, which is snorting. But of course, abuse is still possible. Uh, they studied uh, nasal uh, abusers, and uh, they found that uh, intranasal had a statistically uh, lower drug liking and willingness, willingness to take the drug again compared to crushed uh, morphine ER uh, generic. Uh, the crushed morphobond uh, and intact morphobond were not statistically different uh, in this study, but then they also had similar bioavailability, meaning that in its crushed state, it retained its extended release properties. So pharmacokinetics were pretty similar. Uh, Extamsa is a uh, product containing oxycodone, and uh, this has uh, ADF uh, technology in which uh, is a little bit different than our other products. This is not a a hard tablet. This is a um, product that has these small little um, kind of waxy beads that are inside a capsule. And um, each of these has the extended release property uh, within it. And uh, it is difficult to grind it, crush it, and extract it because it's, it's, they're small and uh, waxy. So this is taking a little bit different route. It, uh, the melted uh, contents are difficult to pass through a hypodermic needle. And therefore, these physical chemical properties make it difficult to inject. And it's expected to reduce uh, abuse by intranasal. It did have a statistically significant lower drug liking and a lower drug take again. Uh, they were unable to conclude in the label um, that it would have less oral abuse. Uh, it did have a lower drug liking, but not a statistically significant take drug again. And it did lack the uh, dose dumping when manipulated, um, but again, did not have the, uh, the label there about the oral abuse, unable to conclude. Uh, they studied uh, in oral uh, crushed uh, and chewed uh, states. Um, and what they found is that uh, in terms of its extended release properties, they didn't see any increase in the Cmax or the total exposure, suggesting that in the crushed state or manipulated state, it retained its extended release properties. Uh, intranasal was, was also the same. So when taken intranasally, they didn't see any increase in the Cmax or any decreased time to the Tmax. 
uh, Troxica ER. This is not currently marketed. This is oxycodone with naltrexone. And uh, this is thought to reduce abuse by oral and intranasal routes. It releases the naltrexone when crushed. And you'll see that the majority, 90%, had a reduction in drug liking. And it's unknown, though, whether the results of the uh, simulated uh, crushed product for IV abuse uh, will work. That's going to take some post-marketing data. Um, Amaro um, tablets, or sorry, Armeo, is a, a morphine extended release. It has some hard tablet technology. And in a liquid environment, it forms a viscous uh, gelatinous mass that hard to push through a syringe, and it has properties that are expected then to reduce abuse. And um, only one human abuse potential study showed a difference in drug liking, and there was no statistically significant reduction in the response to take drug again, so therefore it cannot be concluded, but is expected to reduce abuse. And they studied it uh, here with uh, 39 patients and uh, or abusers, and it's how they conducted their trial. Uh, Ventrella. This is a hydrocodone product. It's also not marketed. The, uh, it was studied with oral and intranasal, and its properties are also thought to reduce its uh, abuse. I'm going to skip. Well, I'll do this one. Uh, one more here. There's quite a few uh, now that we have that are ADF. Roxybond is um, oxycodone, and it is a immediate release uh, product. And essentially, it's hard to manipulate it uh, for other forms of abuse. So this is the only IR product with ADF in its uh, labeling. They looked at intranasal, they looked at uh, crushed, and basically they found that the, uh, it has statistically significant lower drug liking and take drug again when used intranasally. We have other opioids that have ADF uh, components but are not labeled as such. Uh, they're listed here. All of these have some engineering in them but are not, they have not conducted the category trials to get the label. Uh, of ADF. All right, so what happens in the, uh, the market? Uh, there hasn't been any Category 4 data, but there is published data um, in terms of OxyContin. And since it was reformulated, there was a 48% decrease in the National Poison Center surveillance systems of OxyContin. You can see the decreases in the treatment system uh, awareness of this, and 27% uh, decrease in just in individuals prescribed OxyContin. Doctor shopping went down 50% for OxyContin and 65 decrease in opioid uh, overdose uh, fatalities. This is looking at radars data, so across a bunch of different platforms of drug diversion and abuse. The red lines trending down are OxyContin, and then the comparators uh, for the marketplace are above it. So the, the reformulation data that we do have suggests that there is something uh, about the ADF technology, because that's what changed uh, in 2010. So, to kind of wrap this up into a conclusion, basically the technology uh, continues to look at ways to reduce the abuse, misuse, and diversion overdose. We know that there are problems associated with many of our medications when they're not taken as intended. So one of the key objectives is to ensure, to the best of our ability, that these drugs end up with the patients who need them and not into the hands of those who will be harmed and abuse them. Much of our policy now in terms of looking at opioid abuse is kind of a, a one-size-fits-all approach. And I, I want to emphasize that, well, my opinion is it won't work. We have different problems in our communities. We have patients who abuse their own prescriptions. We have patients who divert their drugs. We have patients who unknowingly divert their drugs because they haven't kept them secure. We have patients prescribed excess opioids. We get abusers that are getting them illicitly from patients, through dealers, there's doctor shopping, there's 
healthcare providers who are dealing, their payer coverage policies that make it difficult for us to prescribe the types of medications we feel are most appropriate. We've got treatment guidelines and regulations and law enforcement issues that are impacting how we practice medicine. We have variations in our access to non-opioids. We have uh, really a uh, limited access to addiction medicine uh, treatment facilities. So, and this certainly isn't all of the problem. There are lots and lots of problems that we face as uh, clinicians uh, treating patients. And ADF is, is just one of the kind of approaches to try to address some of these problems. And essentially, if we can make our opioids safer, then we have the potential to continue to provide patients who need access to this class of medication, this type of, medi uh, this type of medication. None of them are abuse-proof, and I want to remind you about the motor vehicle industry. They haven't eliminated car accidents, and they haven't made it so that people can just be reckless in their use of motor vehicles. What they've done is they've made the industry safer, and we definitely see that in the number of people that have been harmed in motor vehicle accidents uh, is going down. And essentially, the efforts to improve the safety and efficacy of all of our pain therapies, including opioids, uh, should be a priority. So with that, I want to thank you uh, for hearing my talk on uh, ADF. So I do have a, a minute or two for any questions or All right, enjoy. Oh, yes. So, so the question was, uh, do I have any tips that uh, can be shared with um, other offices, I imagine like primary care or referral sources, urgent cares, how they can better oversee opiate management in general? Uh, that's a tough, uh, a tough thing to ask because the reality is, is that prescribing opioids today is not simple. I mean, we have to do a lot of risk assessment and monitoring in order to conduct it safely and effectively. So. The tips are, I think, for them to, to recognize their limitations and if they lack the capacity to really oversee these medications to be quite cautious in their prescribing of them and to know their community resources in terms of pain specialty, psychology, addiction medicine, and uh, certainly physical therapy in terms of getting these patients uh, better. But uh, to do it safely, they have to, they have to do the whole thing and not, not piecemeal it. And we, in terms of uh, guidelines, in terms of how to approach this in a uniform way, it doesn't exist because the amount of concrete evidence that says we absolutely should do it in one certain way just is not available. Um, I actually looked at the number of guidelines published since 2008 when uh, ADF was first uh, promoted, and I stopped at 15 different guidelines. I could have found more. Um, there are a tremendous number of guidelines, and they all do differ in how they try to solve these issues, and I think that uh, recognizing it's not a one-size-fits-all uh, approach to me is really the only way we're going to, to have some success, and we need to try to tailor our guidelines for specific situations.
but uh, it's difficult. There isn't a singular approach to, to good monitoring, and each patient is a little bit unique in the type of monitoring that they need. But certainly things like UDT and uh, using PDMPs and, and frequent visits and, and non-opiate therapy and full engagement in the treatment plan, I mean, there are lots of things that are you know, uniform in terms of uh, how we approach these patients. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay, enjoy the uh, rest of uh, pain week.